This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Majid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. In uh, one of uh, Matthew Sullivan's uh, commentaries on the Blue Cliff Record, I believe uh, on Case 98, I came across uh, uh, a reference to um, a sutra that he cites, a sutra on perfect enlightenment in which the Buddha describes four maladies of practice, four ways in which practice can go wrong. Or I used to say that there were ditches on both sides of the middle way. Uh, but here Buddha describes four maladies. So there's one on each side as well as them... Uh, in the front and back, so it seems hard to very hard to proceed. Ditches in every direction. In any case, I thought I would go through uh, the description of those four uh, maladies and try to uh, update them a little bit in relation to the way we practice. The first one is probably uh, the most familiar because he says it's the, it's the malady associated uh, with thinking that enlightenment is a matter of techniques or devices. This is to turn our practice into a means to an end. It's something we can do well or badly, something we need to perfect. And we see enlightenment as the product of our finally getting it right. Now this, go, this goes wrong at a number of levels. Uh, at a basic level, impermanence, emptiness, interconnection, oneness, however you describe these things that are supposed to be the attributes of the Dharma or of realization are all already present. They are the way things naturally are. And to think that we have to practice in order to bring them about is to forever keep them at arm's length, if not on the horizon, instead of being something that's already part of the ground beneath our feet. We see them as something that are achievable only as some special state of consciousness something that um, 
is realizable only to a, a very elite uh, set of uh, practitioners, if not holy men. And in Dogen, we uh, really come across the basic idea that Shikantaza is precisely stepping off this grid of means to end thinking. This whole mindset that governs our ordinary life that says we're not there yet, that this is not it, that we have to do something in order to get from here to there. The essence of meditation instead is to stay exactly where we are and see this place, this ordinary mind as the absolute. And to the extent that we turn meditation into a difficult or esoteric practice, we put that realization of the absolute farther and farther away from where we already are. So that's the, that's the first malady. The second is sort of its reverse. Instead of saying that practice is a means of an end to an end of enlightenment, second malady says, oh, I get it. Uh, we are all originally enlightened. This is our natural state. Why practice at all? This is the malady of, of naturalism, of feeling like essentially we can complacently rest in the knowledge that everything is already interconnected, that everything is already one, everything is already empty. There's nothing to achieve, nowhere to go. And this, like all the maladies, is a half-truth. And it's an, because it's a half-truth, it's easy to get stuck there. And it's a half-truth because it's basically a form of knowledge. It's something that we know or can know conceptually, but don't genuinely experience or realize in the core of our being, at sort of as a fundamental way that we experience ourselves and our life. It's a kind of attempt to deny all the ways in which we, moment after moment, say to ourselves, this is not it. And Joko always asked us to focus on those moments of irritation, anger, anxiety, judgment. We were always saying to the moment, no, not this moment, this isn't it. And no matter how much we want to pay lip service 
to the idea that the absolute is present in every moment, our psychological reality is all built around the denial of that. So that even though practice cannot cre uh, create something that's not already there, our practice is necessary to realize and embody what's already there. And I think that, again, this, um, this malady is, shows up uh, for us in a kind of complacency about our practice. That we try to lull ourselves into a state of uh, imagining that we know this is it and try to sort of talk ourselves into that um, way of being without sort of being emotionally honest about all the ways in which we deny it. The third malady is of uh, stillness. And it's the mistaken belief that enlightenment consists of extinction, either extinction entirely of thought or completely the extinction of need or desire. And I think if you read the old stories, uh, the monks who get uh, slapped upside the head are very often monks who in some way or another have gotten attached to the idea of stillness or uh, quiescence or equanimity as a state that they're trying to achieve and hold on to. And I think that probably in the past, this was in one way much more of a danger because I think people really could become adept at going deep into samadhi, quieting their mind to the point of uh, virtually flatlining you know, themselves to really extinguish all thought. Um, maybe you can never do it completely, but you can almost do it. And that's uh, just as bad. And in the same way, you can develop practice, extreme ascetic practices, where the main virtue of your practice becomes endurance. Where you think that... Uh, you will go beyond all preference, not care about hunger or thirst or heat or cold, let alone the need for love and family and attachment. Now, I don't think that these days many of us actually practice that way, but I think that what happens is that that fantasy 
uh, is deeply ingrained in our kind of um, Zen super ego. Uh, we carry it around as a kind of uh, picture of how we really should be if we, only we were really doing this. That it becomes an object of constant um, comparison where we think that the real monk is the one who's completely able to block all thoughts. That we, when we sit and our mind wanders or we are sitting in pain and not knowing how much of this we can endure or we are aware of how much someone has hurt us or neglected us uh, all these things we're, we're inclined to see as failures of our practice and make us feel that uh, we're very far away from where we should be. That this uh, curative fantasy of uh, stillness, I think, is a kind of uh, pernicious self-judgment that we um, consciously or unconsciously keep imposing upon ourselves so that it gets harder and harder to just settle into the reality of, oh, this is my mind as it is. This is my face in the mirror. This is where the absolute is to be found, right in the midst of these thoughts, right in the midst of these feelings right in the midst of this very body. Yeah. We know that with part of our mind, but another mind always holds out the idea of we should really be able to wipe the slate clean, make complete blankness. That's what this is, the real thing is all about. And I think we have to be very careful that um, to see that we're not implicitly carrying around that picture, regardless of what else we've been told or we've learned. The final malady uh, is related to that, uh, in that it's uh, the, the malady of attachment to emptiness. And in this case, it's more the sense that by saying everything is empty, that there is nothing to gain, nothing to achieve. Also that birth and death and relationships and attachments are all empty. Self is empty. Where that goes is a kind of um, sort of the relational uh, equivalent of uh, the pursuit of stillness, the, pr the pursuit of feeling like I should have no needs or I should have no vulnerability. Uh, emptiness in a perverse way becomes a pursuit of autonomy that we think we should renounce or go beyond uh, any of our ordinary needs or desires or feelings. 
and we try to use our practice as a way to banish our vulnerability. We try to tell ourselves that that's empty, it's not real. We should be able to transcend that. And again, this is not possible, but it's almost possible. Uh, in the name of that, we can sort of turn ourselves into what I've called spiritual anorexics, uh, sort of progressively starving ourselves of our needs, our, our, our wants, our vulnerabilities, our desire for love or attachment as healthy necessities. We think that our goal is to be and want less and less and less and less. Now, all, when we've described these kinds of ditches or dead ends in our practice, uh, it may be hard to see what's left. <coughs> Excuse me. If we don't practice with a goal in mind, how do we practice? If we realize there's nothing to attain, how do we motivate ourselves or understand why we need to sit every day? If we're not trying to quiet our mind or extinguish our vulnerabilities, what is it that we can imagine practice is going to do for us? What actually is the fruit of our practice, if not those things? Perhaps those are questions I should leave you with rather than uh, try to provide four answers to four maladies. Ma maladies. Uh, what is it then that we're actually doing? What then actually are the fruits of our practice? 